can't do one thing without it affecting something else. Like something's got to give, right? So I always try to tell myself, just follow your gut and don't be, don't be afraid to make the wrong decisions. Hopefully in 10 years, I had made a bunch of great decisions that panned out amazing. And the ones that were wrong, I learned from quickly and got back on my feet. Wouldn't be able to tell myself, you know, just go for it. Trust your gut and don't be afraid of the consequences. Just keep running forward. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Inspired. I'm your host, Jonathan Cohen, and that was Mayor Gabriel Groisman, the mayor of Bell Harbor based in Miami, Florida, as well as a practicing attorney and partner at LSN Partners, a nationally recognized full-service consulting firm. I've known Gabe for around 20 years. Gabe has incredible experience in both the law, particularly intellectual property and politics. Gabe wrote and passed the nation's first municipal anti-BDS ordinance in December of 2015, a landmark move in the fight against anti-Semitism. BDS stands for the Boycott, Divestment, and Economic Sanctions Movement Against Israel. Gabe has presented at the UN Conference Against BDS, the Italian Parliament's Conference on Anti-Semitism, and the Israeli Knesset, as well as multiple national conferences for numerous Jewish organizations. Gabe is a nationally recognized public speaker and truly just an awesome guy to talk to and learn from. Please join me in welcoming to the show my friend, Mayor Gabriel Grossman. Okay, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Inside the Inspired. I'm here with an exceptional guest, someone that I've known for over 20 years at this point. This individual is someone that from a very young age cultivated my desire to fulfill myself through music, setting an example for everyone around him, a father, a husband, a leader, a mayor, a lawyer, and so much more. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Mr. Gabe Groisman. How are you today, sir? Hey, how are you? Thanks so much for having me, man. Yeah, I'm man, excited to be on the podcast. <laughs> really appreciate it. Me too, man. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to for a while. I've had to get my reps in before I felt like I could actually get the most out of this conversation. So I'm glad that you were able to make some time. Where are you now? I'm actually in Jerusalem right now. I'm here. I'm actually here for about a month. Family's here, but professionally, I'm hosting lots and lots of elected officials, showing them around Israel, teaching them what they need to know. I also represent Israeli companies and help them in the U.S. So introducing them to the elected to come in and, and honestly, just enjoying the land. How about this? It's Friday at three in the afternoon. Today, I woke up at 430, drove half an hour out towards the desert and uh, went on a four-hour horseback ride, was home by, uh, by 10.30, ready for the day with my kids. So that's the kind of special things you get to do in Israel. You get to work and then still experience amazing things. So enjoying it here. Gabe is a lawyer. He's also the mayor of Bell Harbor. What motivated you to want to go to law school in the first place? So uh, I'm going to just be brutally honest. So I was uh, at University of Michigan. This was, uh, I graduated in 02. So it's, let's put us back into like 2000, 2001. And my career plan was to be a rock star, to be a musician. And that's all I wanted in life. I was studying philosophy because I thought it was interesting. It was challenging. I didn't have to memorize anything. It was more about understanding, reading and writing things I've always enjoyed to do. So that's what I studied. It wasn't really a career path. I think nobody majors in philosophy for career reasons. When I told my parents I was just going to move to New York and become a musician. My mom, like a good Jewish mother said, that's fine, but can you at least apply to law school first? So I applied to law school. It, uh, you know, that's the reality. Got into law schools and uh, deferred for a year, moved to New York to play music and life happened and went in the next year to law school. And that's, uh, that's how I ended up there. Fell in love with it later, but that's how, that's how it all started. Throughout the process, I mean, naturally, with the philosophy background i mean did you kind of find yourself navigating the space of education through like this philosophical lens or was it more like all right here we go no i think i think it's even a little different than that i think i was incredibly surprised when i got to law school how much studying philosophy helped me when you think about what studying philosophy is if, if you took any philosophy classes in college you're understanding incredibly difficult text. And then you have to take that text, figure out what it stands for, what it is that what what position they're taking on certain issues, whether it's skepticism or utilitarianism or different philosophical issues. 
and then boil it down in a one to two page paper, applying it to a different set of facts, understanding you know what their reasoning is. It's exactly the same as looking at a Supreme Court precedent or in a, you know, or a federal court, the appellate court precedent where it's an in-depth case on something that you you knew nothing about before the case started. You have to really understand it. You have to be able to then take it, put it in your own words, apply facts to it. And then what was nice about law school was philosophy. The argument is good enough, right? And it, you don't have to reach an answer. So it, and I ended up really falling in love with law school because it's felt exactly the same, except wait, now you have to argue who's right and who's wrong. Uh, which that's that really doesn't happen in the philosophy space so it ended up being a beautiful fit so as you progress through your experience where was your head at as you were figuring out where you wanted to go first you're like ah fine i'll go to law school and then next you said you fell in love with it so where'd that journey kind of take you yeah so first honestly i was always reading legal novels it's like the kind of those are the books that i read when i was in high school when i was in college i was traveling a bunch i'd read all the legal novels, the John Grisham's and, you know, and, everything, Grisham. and everything in between that makes you fall in love with being a lawyer. We know that being a lawyer isn't much like what's in those books, <laughs> but, uh, but it still, it still piqued, piqued my interest. And then, you know, when I started law school, I really loved it and I had to figure out what I wanted to do. And then for 16 years, I did what I wanted to do, which was litigation. And I focused mostly on intellectual property and commercial litigation. You know, it was a great journey. This last year, I took a turn into a different space, which we could talk about, which has been a, a lot of fun also. But, you know, 16 years as a litigator, I wanted to decide if I wanted to be transactional or, or, or litigation. Those were the decisions. And frankly, I thought transactional was boring and detail-oriented. <laughs> and, and I like arguing and speaking and reading and and not being so detail-oriented on whether a comma is, pr- is proper or not, you know, in a contract. So this is the way I looked at it, you know, at least when I was that age. And I, and I took the plunge. After 16 years as a litigator, did you find yourself going into any other spaces? Yeah, so I always, I always, uh, I've been blessed with somehow always been able to bring in a good amount of business. And what's interesting with that is the best part about being a lawyer for me was, has always been the relationships I built with my clients, you know, and helping them through, you know, difficult times or interesting times. Um, And that really led me to have deep relationships of trust between me and my clients. In turn, you know, that led me into a lot of interesting spaces. I spent three years, you know, also litigating, but at the same time doing anti-corruption investigations around the world, traveling to the Middle East, to the Far East and Latin America, training companies, you know, because they said they only trust me. They didn't want to hire someone else to do it, even though I was a litigator and helped litigate through an issue related to that uh, FCPA, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So I did a lot of that. I did a lot of transactional licensing trademark work, because the clients I was doing litigation for, you know, asked me to handle that for them. And I didn't want to say no, even though my firm was only a litigation shop. I also at all times was doing some form of government relations work, whether it was for uh, for some clients or just for my activism space. You know, when I put on my uh, Jewish activist hat that I wear proudly, you know, there's a lot of a lot of lobbying related to that. And so I always played in that space also. So really for for those 16 years, I did a little bit of everything. My primary definitely was litigation, but you know, I was never a, a lawyer. I've never been a lawyer or a person that lives inside of a box. So when you say you don't live inside of a box, is there a particular framework or, or ideology that you abide by? Obviously, you wear your Judaism very proudly, as do I. But are there certain principles that you find yourself being guided by when you're going about any of your practices, if that makes sense? Yeah, so if we're if we're still talking about sort of my professional practice as a lawyer, well, here's one guiding principle that's from that that relates to that, but really relates to everything I do, is that you know your your name means everything. So you know, as a child, you know, you're taught to say, ah, who cares what people think? It actually matters a lot, but it doesn't. You have to, you have to. It has to be nuanced, right? It doesn't matter what someone thinks about how I comb my hair, right, or what clothes I wear. That that matters not, but whether I'm an honest person or whether, you know, judges, you learn as, you know, you you just started your career, but you learn that judges all speak all the time, right? So you want judges to know that when, when you say a case says something, it says something, right? They don't have to go and look it up. Like they know that they're not going to pull out the book because when they do, if they do have, if they have to check on what you're saying, you know, you haven't built yourself a reputation yet. Right. And the same is true with clients and the same is true with colleagues and, 
even if they're on the other side in a case, you have a reputation of being a sort of that sort of person. So, you know, I've always I've always been a lawyer, a professional, really a person who's prided myself on being very strong, aggressive advocate for my clients or for whatever I'm trying to do, but always doing it honestly and openly. And, um, you know, sometimes it leads to interesting conversations with opposing counsel in the, over the years, which says, look, here's, here's what's going to happen, you know, and it ends up, you know, if you're confident enough, you could pull it off. But for me, that was always very important. Now you're in politics, right? Yeah, it's been eight, almost eight years. How's that ride been? It's been amazing. So I, I ran for city council on hyper local issues. And I'm the, I don't like complaining. I like getting things done. And there were some issues going on in my city. And I, it's a small city, Bell Harbor, you know, we're less than 10,000 people. And I just went down to City Hall and I watched a hearing and I said, oh my, I can't believe the, this is the conversation that's yielding decisions that affect my life. Right. So I decided to run for city council. Thankfully, I ended up being unopposed. It didn't start that way, but it ended that way. So I got on city council. Two years later, the council voted me as mayor. That's how it works in our town. And it's been uh, quite a ride the last six years. Uh, you know, all, all of my passions in life somehow coincided, you know, wearing the political uh, hat. And, you know, it's, it's been incredible. So both the, lo- the local issues have been incredible, learning how to manage an organization and having a team and a, having a city manager and a council and different personalities and understanding how, what it means to take a pause when someone says something to you uh, before responding, you know, which is very hard for a lot of us. Uh, but when you're in politics, you learn very quickly because people throw a lot at you. It's really been incredible. And then outside of that, just, you know, being able to use the, the megaphone that it gives you for things that I care about has been, uh, has been incredible. I don't, I don't regret a day of it. That power in standing still, especially when someone's kind of calling out your integrity, your values, your viewpoints, I'm sure you get challenged a lot. You mentioned briefly what it is you stand for. So I'm going to gently ask you, what is it that you stand for? No matter what I do, we're talking about my identity. If we're talking about that, right? It's like, who am I? What's my identity? You know, I'm a proud Jew. I'm a Zionist. I'm a, I'm a father. I'm a, fa- a father of five. I've got five little girls from 15 to two years old. You know this. I'm a husband to a woman I've been married to since I'm 23 years old, almost 20 years already. That's our 19th anniversary coming soon. You know, and, you know, that that's who I am. And I carry it with me everywhere I go, right? Everything I do doesn't mean I'm perfect. And I try to, you know, I'm telling you what my intent is when I wake up in the morning, right? So, and, and really the, my goal in life has become to make an impact, right? So, uh, I, I don't try to change people's minds on things. I try to spur conversation. I try to to affect people's lives as much as I can in a positive way. And, and you know, tr- it, the most I can surround myself now in, in life with people that I respect and I admire and not surround myself with people who I don't, uh, which are different things, right? So, you know, that's that's something I've grown into a lot because, you know, you hear the saying, you are who you, you know, show me your friends and I'll tell you who you are. Mm-hmm. I, I always hated that. I said, don't judge me by my friends, judge me by me. But, you know, then I realized if, if people around you are amazing, you're going to push yourself to be amazing. And if people around you are, you know, are, are wasting their time and cheating on their wives and, you know, not doing anything interesting in life, positive in life, then how, how even if they're fun to watch a football game with, how, how is that going to positively affect you? So I've really tried to hone in on what I'm trying to accomplish in my life and for myself and for my kids and for, you know, and for everything around me. So as you embrace that identity that you were talking about so valiantly from your personal to professional values and, and all the different aspects of what it is that allow you to function at such a high level, how do you kind of find that grounding uh, being, being your, propeller if you will as you figure out how to handle an obstacle so i guess to ask the question a lot more simply when you're faced with a challenge how do you approach it yes so every challenge is different right so if it's on on the personal challenges uh you know put my life in three spaces let's say personal professional and and political uh, on the on the personal side, you know, I challenge, I, I deal with it the way everyone does. You know, first, you know, first thing I have to do is 
check my emotions, which always takes a little while, right? Especially on the personal side. Um, because in the beginning, no matter what obstacle you deal with, the emotions come rushing up, right? But at some point, as you mature, you figure out how to take a deep breath and figure out now what's the best way to approach something. And, you know, I, I, I could tell you that this may or may not be a popular approach to, to life, but it's mine, which is, you know, I really, really, I'm not someone who analyzes every life decision that I make. It's quite the contrary. When I do, I end up not making a decision. So really, I'm, I'm a person who really follows his gut. And I trust my instincts on things. And, you know, I'm, I am an emotional person. I'm someone who, you know, if I want something, I go after and get it. But it's not because I analyzed it and made a chart, you know, of pros and cons and tried to figure out what's the best way to crack a code and then went forward. Um, that's especially on the personal side. Uh, on the professional side, I do, I do a bit of that, of the analyzing, because too much is at risk, right? If on, you know, I take care of my family. So if I'm going to change careers or make a decision, you know, that, that can affect my kids' lives. I do a little bit of analyzing, but at the end of the day, I just go by, by instinct and, and by my gut, but really where does your gut come from? You know, where does your instinct come from? That's who you are, right? As long as you're aware of who you are and, and who you, where you come from and what you carry with you, everything you've learned in your life, which I try to do, I try to be present with all those things then your gut isn't really such a gut decision, right? A lot of it might be happening subconsciously, but it's taking you to that decision. So you have some really awesome experience on there about you've traveled all over the world advocating for the Jewish people. And on a couple particular occasions, you've even been brought to the United Nations to speak. What was that experience like? Yeah, amazing. And pardon me, let me back up. What brought you there? Yeah. So first I'll just say life is crazy. And, and, and I'm learning as I get a little bit older is that life is so much about relationships and about consistency. So, you know, you meet people and you're doing something. If you meet them in a year later, a year later, or, you know, 10 times in that year, and you're still doing that and you're still pushing a position and you're still, you still have, uh, have built yourself a name in, in something that's good. And, you know, and you're still doing it five, 10 years down the road you know, those relationships really grow deep. And, you know, a lot of the opportunities I've had to speak in amazing places like the United Nations, you know, even despite its darkness in that space, but it's still an important place to be and to speak or the Israeli Knesset or, you know, a lot of other amazing places. You know, it's really a result of those relationships. But you ask, like, what brought me there? So, I, you know, the, there's the Boycott, Divest and Sanction movement, the BDS movement, which is uh, this anti-Semitic movement established in the early 2000s to try to delegitimize the state of Israel and be a tool for anti-Semitism around the world. Today, there's almost all states in the country, the vast majority of states, I think it's 39 or 40 states right now, have some version of an anti-BDS law in hundreds of cities. Uh, but about six years ago, uh, I wrote and passed the nation's first anti-BDS city ordinance that prohibits our city from entering into, entering into a contract with someone who's involved in the boycott of Israel. Um, just like they have to certify that they are not, they're not going to discriminate on someone based on their race, religion, gender, etc. They also have to certify that they're not involved in, in this uh, anti-Semitic boycott movement. And being the first uh, city ordinance doing that really helped put me into a small group of people who informally decided to take on the issue and go state by state and city by city and try to get it passed in as many places as possible. And it, it wasn't well received by everybody at first, you know, until it started gaining steam and then everybody jumped on board and I'm glad they did. No, none of us did it for credit. We all did it to try to get, make a difference. And, and, and thankfully, you know, it, it's had a big effect, at least on the, in the political discussions, when it comes to this issue, I really, uh, in, in the majority of both sides of the political aisle, everybody seems, mostly everyone sees eye to, eye to eye when it comes to this issue, which is so important. I can imagine that when you're in those types of situations that there's a lot of negativity that comes your way in the form of either public discourse or just bad energy. How do you handle that? How do you compartmentalize? What is it that allows you to kind of keep work at work and be the family man at home? 
so on my on my Jewish activism stuff, I don't consider it work. So that is my life, and I want my kids mm. to know about it. And we speak about it at home, and that's something that I, I bring home with me every day. It's what I try to talk about to to teach my kids the importance of not just the issues, but the importance of fighting. Right, especially as Jews. Yesterday, I took a, a, a U.S. Senate candidate to the Holocaust Museum Yad Vashem here in Israel, and he. And someone who was with him said when we walked out, I now understand why the Jewish people fight so hard against anti-Semitism, right? So that's something I want my kids to, I want my kids to understand that in their veins, right? So I do bring that home. How do I deal with the negativity? When you're in public office, it helps because you learn that no matter what you do, someone's going to be against you. In fact, whatever you do, 40, 45% of people are going to be against you. That's the polarized society we live in. Just by example, we were building a new park, almost a $20 million park, and people were going crazy. I had to leave the meeting because of the screams about whether there was going to be a tennis court or not, right? So even on mundane issues, people go crazy. Imagine when you're standing up to Nazis and, and Islamic extremists and, and being public about it and getting retweeted by the governor or his office. And It's not fun. I call them love letters. I get a lot of them from people who are not happy with what you're doing and they're trying to intimidate you, but really... You can also judge somebody by their enemies. So if I'm if I'm upsetting those kind of people, I, yeah, I have to deal with it. I compartmentalize it. I put it aside and I keep pushing because I'm not going to change what I'm doing because someone's trying to intimidate me not to do it. Honestly, that's one of the most admirable things, man. I mean, you know, from my own experience, having served in the IDF, that from the get-go, there was like this blind determination that always made me want to do something when i visited the concentration camps on march of the living when i was 18 years old i remember being in those camps and looking around and just kind of being in like this really weird space where i'd always heard the stories i had taken a holocaust class in high school but i'm 18 years old standing in my donic looking around and just in awe that something like this could happen all this evil to my own family to my own people and I only knew that there was one thing that I could do to make me feel like I did my part. And yeah, well, let me tell you, let me interject to tell you that what's amazing and why it's so admirable is when I was 18, I wasn't thinking about those things at all. <laughs> it took me, it took me a few years to really, I mean, I was always, I, I was always involved in the community and doing things, but it was more from a positive fun space. I never really, I, I always think back, like, how come I didn't serve at that age? You know, it's so obvious now the kind of things I do, but it never even, it wasn't even in the equation, honestly, right? So, you know, it's it's uh, it's amazing that you got there at that age. I know it, it says a lot about you, but also about your family and the family you come from. And, and you know, your, your dad was in the army, I know, and, uh, and, and your mom's such a fighter. And, you know, it's just sort of, <laughs> it's in your bones and it's amazing. But yeah, that's where we, that's where we are as a people, but really that's where everybody should be, right? So, I think everybody these days, you know, the conversation used to be when I was in college, I graduated 21 years ago. So when I was when I was in college, I was at University of Michigan. Everything was about diversity. When you think about what diversity means, like everybody's their own and different, diverse. And together we learn from each other and we're better because we learn from different cultures and different people. But to learn from different people, they have to be different. right? They have to have their own identities. Right. Today, with intersectionality and all this mishmash of, of things and, and, and the woke culture we live in in so many spaces, or so many people live in at least, it dumbs down society and then it sort of waters down identity. So when I, when I talk to college kids around the country, to Jewish college kids across the country, many of them don't even know what their identity is. Right? They don't know where they come from or, or you know, who they are because that's not society today. So, you know it's super admirable that you, that you did what you did. And I know that solidified your identity as, as you're going forward into your, the next phase in your next phases in your life. Amazing. And then I look at the things that you do and it makes me feel like I got to run it back or do something more because I'm so proud of everything that you're up to, man. You get up there and you represent the Jewish people at the highest levels in the greatest public forum that that is on the planet in the form of the UN on multiple occasions to do it in the manner that you did with the experience that you have under your belt. I mean, a warrior comes in all different types of shapes and sizes and energies, the way that you go about it on a daily basis from 
taken senators around Yad Vashem, which actually for the listeners who don't know, please explain what Yad Vashem is. Yad Vashem is the, is the most significant Holocaust museum in the world. It's here in Jerusalem, here because I'm here in Jerusalem. Uh, the current building was built in 2005. I know because I was there just yesterday. And it's really this spectacular museum. I mean, the design of the museum, it takes you through what life was like in, in uh, Eastern Europe in the 30s and how the Jewish people went from the upper echelons of society so quickly. 3.3 million Jews in Poland, just by example. At the end of the world the war, there was 300,000. So they killed almost 90% of the Jews in Poland. In a few years, with political unrest and economic instability and a fascist leader, people just flocked to it very quickly. And you see the deterioration and the steps that it took. And like you said, uh, John, I studied the Holocaust. I've read, I don't know, 20, 20 something books on the Holocaust. I've been, I've been to many of the camps. So when I take, I haven't taken anyone in years. I sent people, but yesterday I went and I did not expect to be affected at all. It's impossible to go through that museum if you have a heart in your chest and not be affected one way or the other. So it's really, it's really spectacular. If someone has not seen it, it's a, it's a must. It's never a fun decision to, to make, to say, hey, let's go to a Holocaust museum. But, but it's, it's incredibly significant. It's crazy because I've been there multiple times. I've been there as a civilian. I've been there as a soldier. I've been there after the army and even now just talking about it, it hits so much different because I'm so much wiser and smarter. So I understand things from the time period to the gravity of it. And the fact that you can take the information and present it in such a holistic way that makes people really understand numerically, statistically, and obviously morally, like you said, if anyone has a heart in their chest, they understand what the genocide was and why it is that we fight so hard for what we do. So as you look towards the future and, and the actions that you take based on all of what you've clearly conveyed as your inspiration and grounds for what makes you want to fight so hard, what is the next challenge, obstacle, fight you're looking to take on? Yeah. Some of these fights keep finding me. My work with uh, against the BDS movement transformed itself after about two years into work against just anti-Semitism, uh, because if you in try to intellectualize the boycott movement against Israel, you can come up with lots of conclusions of it being proper or improper, or especially our people, we, we can intellectualize anything into whatever we want it to be. But in reality, if you spend time around the space, you see that uh, it, it's just pure anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic movement. So I got very involved in just dealing with anti-Semitism in different spaces, in the political space, in, um, in companies. There's a lot of issues around the country, consulting in cases, working on cases directly and indirectly all over the world. On, um, you'll, you know, coming from the BDS space, but very quickly turning into just religious discrimination cases from Spain to Canada to, to the European Union and everywhere in between. And my name is not on all of those cases at all, but I've worked on most of them in one capacity or the other. And it transformed itself yet again, which is the space that I've been in now for the last year and a half, at least in my mind, because I still deal with other issues. Now, this is looking inward a little bit into our communities that I, I came to realize that, you know, fighting anti-Semitism is great, but it has two problems. First is, well, three problems. First is anti-Semitism is never going to go away. Uh, it's always existed. It'll always be here. It has, it has uh, peaks and valleys, but, but it doesn't go anywhere. Um, so we still have to fight it. We have to fight it all the time, but it can't, can't be our only, our only focus. Second, I realized that if it's our only focus, we figure out what we're fighting against, but we have no idea what we're fighting for. And I realized that particularly in the U.S., but also in Latin America, the Jewish communities didn't really understand their Jewish identity or have a lot of Jewish pride, didn't understand the connection between their, uh, our religion and the state of Israel. And I realized that we have to do a better job strengthening our community itself and our Jewish identity and pride to be able to deal with the astronomical increase of anti-Semitism all over the world in so many different spaces. So 
you know, I've spent a lot of time, I can't even quantify it, speaking to groups, writing articles on just the importance of knowing our identity and having being strong Jews and understanding our connection to Israel and our religion and our ethnicity and our peoplehood and who we are. Um, so that's really, that's really been my focus for the last few years. And now I'm dealing with a lot in the political space nationally. So, you know, the, the fights keep coming, you know, the corporate anti-BDS stuff keeps coming through. We had it with Airbnb. We had it now with Ben and Jerry's. We thought Ben and Jerry's was over and now it's back because Ben and Jerry's is suing Unilever to try to stop the sale. We can get into that if you want, but these issues keep finding me, but I'm glad they do. And, you know, as long as I could turn it into positivity and leave people inspired to fight more and to push harder and to be prouder of who they are, you know, without ignoring the issues, but still focusing on something positive, you know, then I'm happy that I'm, that I'm spending time doing it. I want to ask you about impact. You mentioned at the beginning that the next stage is about impact. There's a saying, I believe, and I'm, I may misquote it, but I believe it was David Geffen. Let's make, sure. let's, make it, let's make a deal with your listeners. No one will Google it. So whatever okay. you say. <laughs> so I believe it was David Geffen, who's a music agent, who said, at the end of the day, no one will remember my name, but they'll remember my impact. The point being, the benefit of being a good person is that you get to be a good person. When you talk about impact, the level of government that you reach to and as you continue to aspire, how do you find the ability to affect change shifting? What I mean by that question is, do you see yourself making more of an impact at this level as a mayor relative to where you were at as a councilman, meaning that motivates you to want to continue to elevate yourself and make if you want to ask me if, if you ask me if I want to run for something else, just ask. I'll speak to my own experience for an example. As a civilian, I don't find it as effective to make an impact as I did when I was a prosecutor. So as a prosecutor, I found that my ability to make an impact was in the one-on-one interactions. Now, if I was to get up to the legislative stage and be able to rewrite laws, I don't know if that would be as impactful in my view as the one-on-one intimate interactions that I would share with victims of domestic violence or any other victims. So what I'm trying to ask is, do you see yourself continuing to run for something if you're willing to answer that? But do you find your ability to impact change stronger as you continue to climb? It's a fair question. So let me reframe it just in, in my answer a little different. The decisions that I have to make in the, in the coming months and years when it comes to whether or not or what I run for next, because I'm done in November after eight years on the city council. It's not a term limit, but it's a self-term limit. I don't believe in people being in the same position forever. I pushed for term limits mm-hmm. publicly many, many times in my city and failed miserably because people like being there forever. Um, I don't. I don't think it's good for systems, for organizations, and definitely not for government. But the decisions that I make are driven, I was going to say 100%, but other than by my family, by whether and what kind of impact I can make from those seats, right? So that is what I look at. So, you know, I'll be frank, I had been asked or was considering whether I was going to run for the state legislature, just, and, there's, and I'm friends with many, many state legislators. For what I do and the, the, what, the impact that I try to have, it doesn't help me push that forward directly, right? I mean, yes, a little bit, I can get some stuff done, but the stuff I can get done, I can get just as much done from the legislatively from outside than from inside, it doesn't help me. So when I look at other positions that are interesting to me, it's only based on, okay, is it worth it? Because there's a price to pay when you run for these offices and when you win and Mm -hmm. you get that, right? Not just being in the public eye, but we know everybody looks at politics today, there's a negative around it, your family's in the spotlight, you make less money, right? Then if you're just in the private sector, all those things that we consider, there's nothing wrong with that, right? My, we live in a capitalist society and I, you know, I've got five kids to raise and I want to raise them well and nice and everything in between. I want them to have everything that they dream of. Um, but I would put aside some of those things, you know, if, if I know I can make an impact. So I definitely think about that in making those decisions. I have not made any decisions, but a lot of it has to do with a lot of puzzle pieces need to move in the next two years to figure out what spaces on the board are available, right? Or feasible. So right now I'm just gonna keep pushing forward and 
staying as uh, impactful as possible. And when the time comes, if the time comes, I'll evaluate wh whether it's a place that's feasible and whether there I can make a big impact. And if I do, if I can, you know, I'll go for it. And if I can't, I'll just keep doing it from the outside. So we'll see. The self-awareness and how I'm going to say again, profound, it sounds to recognize like really you're putting the greater good above your own personal interest, despite, like you said, your ability and confidence to know what you can achieve uh, professionally, politically, but also recognizing that the mission is much greater and that purpose really drives you. And, and it's so evident and comes across all the way from Israel to here in New York. So now rolling it back to Ben and Jerry's, can you give a quick synopsis for the novel listeners that aren't sure about what we're talking about? Yeah, sure. So rolling back all the way to like 2005, when this uh, BDS movement started, the boycott, divest, sanction movement, the goal of the movement is to uh, create as many boycotts and divestments, which is taking investments out of and sanctions against Israel as a way to, to do different things, you know, so they'll, they'll to drive Israel into the sea, whatever that means to destroy Israel to some of them try to be a little nuanced and say, no, it's just Jews living in certain areas in Israel. When people call the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, other people say it's all of Israel, depends who you ask. Um, and they've had a lot of different efforts and they've gone into churches they've, uh, and they were successful in getting certain churches to, to boycott Israel. A lot of those have reversed, by the way, uh, in the last several years. They started with trade unions. Uh, you know, it sounds like the 1930s, right? Um, uh, and a lot of it's been stopped. A lot of this anti-BDS legislation has really been effective. Um, but our enemies never sleep, right? So they've been focusing a lot on there's something called corporate social responsibility, CSR. Mm -hmm. So uh, these corporations say it's a nice concept, which is you can't just put on a uh, an ink at the end of your name or, or, you know, and or an LLC and say, I have no more moral responsibilities, right? You shouldn't sell drugs to children, whether they're legal or not. And you shouldn't, you know, there's things you shouldn't be doing, right? Uh, you shouldn't have uh, child labor, forced child labor to make your product, even if it's just business. So that's corporate social responsibility in a nutshell environmental now they call it esg which is really comes from uh, that's environmental social government and social governance socially conscious governments i think um all of it's the same and these bds folks have really infiltrated a lot of the, those positions in companies where they have csr officers or esg officers in their companies and we're seeing large companies for the first time taking positions to boycott israel in one way or the other uh, they're not in great number, but they're a great impact. So um, the first one was Airbnb, which uh, I was involved in small part uh, to help getting them to reverse it, which they did. Airbnb said that uh, for they, they delisted homes in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank in an area, this area in the land of Israel, in the state of Israel, where they said were, if they're Jewish homes, they can't be listed. If they're Arab homes, they can be listed. Um, and it was really because an organization got involved with uh, Airbnb and convinced them that this was the right thing to do for their one of their social missions. And even today, they've convinced them. There's people on their board that still think it. Um, I'm sorry, I, I, I confused two things. So that was Airbnb, Airbnb and Airbnb got, got uh, they reversed their decision after uh, lawsuits were filed and lots of diplomatic efforts and City, city ordinances and BDS statutes and governors making statements and saying they're not going to work with them anymore. And Twitter was the first activation of the anti-BDS apparatus and it worked. And now if I shift to, to Ben and Jerry's, I apologize, I, I uh, confused the two for a moment, but um, Ben and Jerry's, it was a similar thing. They have, a, they have their own board that deals with social issues. Same folks kind of got involved there and were able to convince them that their licensee in Israel, it's a licensee who makes the ice cream here. It's not, it's not a distributor. He makes the ice cream here. They give him the formula. He makes it here. He has a license for the entire region. So he sold to Jews, to Arabs. He sold in Israeli cities. He sold in cities controlled by the Palestinian Authority. He sold in settlement, Jewish settlements and Arab settlements and everywhere in between. He was selling ice cream. Actually, the owners, Avi Zinger, has become... Uh, we become friendly. We've had we've met many times, 
and he he's not a particularly political person. He just wants to sell ice cream to everybody. And the Ben and Jerry's told him, despite the fact that you're one of our best licensees in the world, in the world, um, we're not going to renew your 10-year license that was up for renewal at the end of the year unless you agree not to sell to Jews in this area, in Judea and Samaria, in the West Bank. And he says, I'm not going to do that, first of all. And second of all, that's illegal under Israeli law. I'm, no, I'm, I sell ice cream to everybody. And they cut him off. So, you know, the, the again, all of us involved in this space, one way or the other, you know, really activated. The Israeli government, government activated. Many states activated. People really started pushing against Unilever, their parent company. And it resolved. Lawsuits were filed. It resolved in a settlement that was announced two weeks ago where Unilever agreed. They said they didn't have authority on what Ben and Jerry's does with regards to boycotts or not boycotts or decisions, scopes of where their licensees can sell. But they pulled out a trump card, no pun intended, that they said, wait, we're, we can sell this division. We are we're the parent company. We're going to sell this license. And they sold it to Avi Zinger in Israel. And they said, you can use Ben and Jerry's. You just can't use it in English. You can write it in Hebrew and in Arabic, but not, which are the two languages here in Israel. And uh, you just can't, you write Ben and Jerry's in English. And he accepted, he bought it. And he's uh, and at the end of the year, he's supposed to have now full rights. But so we thought it was over. We succeeded, we celebrated, but now Ben and Jerry's is actually suing Unilever saying, you're not allowed to do that. And we still stand by our decision. So, you know, the, the fight, the fight continues. That was a very dense synopsis, very wholesome. Sorry if it was too long. <laughs> no, the opposite. I think it's so important. That's why I didn't want to interrupt anything because to have someone at your level handling these situations and giving a complete analysis and sharing and spreading the message, it's so vital because people don't know. They don't see the subtle ways that anti-Semitism really breeds. And I'm using my own platform. This is honestly the first time I've ever really had these kinds of conversations. Let's talk about anti-Semitism, uh, pardon me, on a public platform like this, let alone my own. At first, when I launched this podcast, it was really about, as you know, inviting admirable, inspiring people onto this platform and talk about their blueprint, their success, and how they got to where they are. But I know and understand my responsibility as a proud Jewish man to advocate especially as someone who advocated here in the public space as a former prosecutor. I did my service in Israel and I've done my service here, five years of public service. And now I'm obviously in a much different space, but I recognize the responsibility that falls on me to also use and, and share my voice in a way and also bring people on such as yourself to spread awareness around a zero tolerance policy for any anti-Semitism under any conditions whatsoever. And hopefully today we've conveyed why the history that it's rooted in and the subtleties that anti-Semitism exists, whether it's in the courtroom or the papers or in politics, no matter where it is, or in the streets, as we know, there's a zero tolerance policy. This is a way to kind of make it more palatable in the sense that we're just speaking facts and That's it. let me just tell you one thing it's look at it a little different it's not an it's not a responsibility it's an opportunity right so you're put mm. in these places you know if you believe in god god puts you in these places you know if you don't believe in god the karma of the world puts you in it's the same thing by the way puts you in <laughs> in these situations that give you an opportunity to do something and and if you don't then you're, you know, in my perspective, you're having a boring, living a boring life, right? You're going in and clocking in and clocking out. Your life has meaning. And, you know, there's no reason to check who you are at the door, no matter who you are, whether it's, you know, this, this translates to everybody. It's not just a Jewish issue. Everybody should walk around proudly with their identity of who they are. And, you know, it doesn't mean be disrespectful to anyone else. Quite the contrary. I think the best relationships I have with folks that think differently than me, that look differently than me, and that come from different places than me, 
you know, they'll all tell me the same thing, which is they love hanging out with me and spending time with me discussing ideas because I'm firmly rooted in where I am and who I am, but it doesn't take away with my, my desire to help them and to, and to learn from them and to live a diverse life also. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to wash away who I am to do that. And no one should have to do that. So it's a great opportunity. So you should be proud of yourself. I'm sorry to flip it, that you do have these opportunities to talk about anything that's interesting to you or important to you as a person. And, you know, people, you know, people will listen, you know, if you're consistent and you keep doing it for many years and for a lot of time and you keep being who you are, then the the reach will spread, continue to spread. So pretty amazing opportunity. I appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. So as we kind of round this thing out, there's a couple more things I want to ask you about. Can you talk to us a bit about the Children's Tumor Foundation, what that is and what it means to you? Yeah, sure. It's just, you know, I, uh, I got thrown into this incredible opportunity to, to be involved with the Medical Research Foundation called the Children's Tumor Foundation that does medical research for a rare disease um, and a rare genetic disease. And it just was amazing. It's amazing to be involved as much as possible in things that you care about with incredible people and where you can have an impact. And this it's a small organization with a tremendous impact and the people there are amazing. I've made some uh, amazing friendships and relationships there. And uh, it takes a good bit of my time, but I'm, but I'm happy to be able to contribute there. And how about music? You still playing that guitar? Yeah. Yeah. I sing, play guitar, piano. I play as much as I've ever played. Uh, just not to an audience anymore. <laughs> So my kids don't my kids don't really like it, but one day maybe they will. One day. Yeah. Hey How man, how is it fan? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. I'm still writing, I'm still singing, still with that piano. Got a lot better since I was 12 years old. Yeah, uh, good. But who knows when you come for the wedding, maybe we get a little jam sesh. What do you mean who knows? Done. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's a couple of questions that I try to stay consistent with when I ask the guests that come on this show. One of them is if you had to speak to the version of yourself 10 years from now, what do you think he would say to you today in order to get to where he is and who you're aspiring to be? So for me, that's a very tough question. And I'll tell you why. I'm very bad at planning my life. Like I really just look for opportunities that are right. You know, think of like a, uh, a running back going and looking for holes, right? So that's sort of how I, I lead my life. It drives my wife crazy when she says, what's your five-year plan? And people think I'm cagey when I'm answering. I'm not sure what I want to do. And I have the same private conversations with my wife and she's the closest person to me on the planet, right? So I don't know what, where I'm going to be in 10 years. I, I don't know. I, have, I, I don't know what that person would say. I, I hope they would tell me to continue to follow my gut and to have courage. You know, I mean, it's, it, a lot of these decisions that I take on what I'm going to do and opportunities that I, that I, that I chase aren't easy and have effects on other parts of my life. One thing I've realized kind of doing so many different things is that you can't do one thing without it affecting something else. Like something's got to give, right? So I always try to tell myself, just follow your gut and don't be, don't be afraid to make the wrong decisions you know, hopefully in 10 years, I had made a bunch of great decisions that panned out amazing. Or the ones that were wrong, I learned from quickly and got back on my feet, would be able to tell myself, you know, just go for it, trust your gut and don't be afraid of the consequences, just keep running forward, right? So that's what I struggle with. If you're talking about what's my struggle, that's my struggle, right? Trying to figure out how to go forward without without overthinking it, just trust the gut and go. Ladies and gentlemen, Mayor Gabriel Groisman, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show today. It's such a pleasure to have you, man. I've learned so much from you from afar and near over the years. Every time we get together, I'm always hyped to talk to you. And I'm glad that we had the chance to sit down for a bit from Israel to New York. I know the message and, and the love and the feelings were felt. It's honestly a pleasure and, and a privilege to get to sit down and see how you've changed from when you were at my bar mitzvah when I was 12 years old, all the way to now seeing you as a grown man and leader and, and a father and a husband and setting the tone for all us young men out there, man. It's, it's really cool to see you doing your thing and just know even if 
we're not reaching out every two seconds. You are making that impact that you are uh, seeking to accomplish. And I'm glad that we got some time to catch up today, man. Thank you, man. Feel free to reach out as much as you want. And congrats on Mazel Tov on the engagement. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you tuning into this episode. If you want to follow Gabe's journey, please follow him on LinkedIn. Gabriel Goisman. You can't miss him. The one and only. The next chapter of episodes that I'm going to be rolling out are going to be in the theme of criminal law. So as I've alluded to, my background is as a criminal prosecutor in the Bronx. I served in the Special Victims Division as a domestic violence prosecutor where I prosecuted hundreds of cases and I learned an immense amount. As a result, I also developed incredible relationships. These next few episodes are going to be about the people that cultivated my skill set, mindset, and the people that I modeled my game after, if you will. And it ranges from judges to prosecutors to defense attorneys. In my opinion, that 360 approach, just as we talk about in fitness, where nutrition, stress management, sleep, and then training all make for that holistic approach it's the same view as a professional in my opinion where i surrounded myself with the best prosecutors the most effective defense attorneys and also had the opportunity to learn from judges that being said i'm really hyped for you to listen to the next few episodes i get to talk about it in a very transparent lens where i'm sharing my experiences but also eliciting the other side as well so strap in it's going to be an exciting few weeks i'm going to release them as quickly as i can i really appreciate the patience in the meantime that's all for this one thank you so much again for tuning in and until next time stay safe stay strong stay mindful